As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, um, we come now to uh, your word and I pray, God, that you would uh, be with us, help us as we think through it, um, enable us to see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, through this word so that we would live in his glory, reflecting his glory. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to James in chapter 2, please. I want to read the first 13 verses. I'm not going to get to all of that today, but to set the context. We'll pick up really by way of our thinking, beginning in verse 8 next week. But, uh, but I want to read the whole context. James chapter 2, please. In verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet... Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but... Uh, do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged according, under the law of liberty. For judgment is without, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, the last time uh, we listened to James a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, um, uh, he had mentioned. In the end of chapter 1, what is pure and undefiled religion? If we go back there just a moment, verse 26, he said, if anyone... Oh, I forgot to say it, didn't I? You were waiting for me to say it, weren't you? There you go. This is the word of the Lord. I'm so glad. See, I just want to get going, and I shouldn't. Second service, people, I'm really worse at it. I think this is the first time I forgot in this service for a while. Second service, I forget all the time. I have people sitting on the edge of their seats ready to say it. And they look at me like I've let them down. And it takes me about 20 minutes to realize why. (sighs) Anyway, then it's way like too late, right? Too late. So thanks for, I don't know who reminded me. But anyway, one of you by your faces did. But verse 26 of chapter 1. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their, own affli- in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This, this sense of pure and undefiled religion. James is just simply going to refer to that, as he will throughout, as faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he does in chapter 2. It's the same to him. 
And so for him, pure and undefiled religion is, is one that doesn't simply hear the word. We have to hear it. Faith comes by hearing. You don't come to faith without hearing the word of the Lord. So you've got to hear it. But he says, if you really do hear it, this will be his theme throughout. If you really do hear it, then it'll transform your life. Something will change about you that's consistent with that word that you've heard. So it isn't just hearing, but it's also doing. So he says, pure and undefiled religion has an impact on our lives. It gives us a controlled tongue, if you will, compassionate hearts. Widows and orphans were the ones in the culture in which uh, James lived that were marginalized, that were most vulnerable. They may or may not be in certain other contexts, but his point is it isn't to don't stop your compassion with widows and orphans, but, but be compassionate to those who are in need, if you will, who are marginalized, who need you, and, and then also live unstained by the world, that is to live a clean life. So a controlled tongue, a compassionate heart, and a clean life, to live not by the world standards, if you will, but by God's, not by worldly ways, but those ways that are consistent with the kingdom. The kingdom of God. So he sets that up. Now, very bluntly, as he does, he just sort of jumps right in. He says, now here's how you walk that out. This is what I mean by that. The rest of his letter is going to unpack really that sentence or two in uh, the end of chapter one. How it is that we live with our, light, our tongues controlled, our hearts compassionate, and our lives unstained. It'll take us through the rest of of his letter. He's going to unpack that. So he begins here in this uh, particular situation. Now to understand what James is, is, is saying, it's helpful, I think, for us to consider the context in which he writes and to the people to whom he writes. That is to say this. First of all, we know that they were culturally relatively poor. They were refugees. Remember, there had been a persecution in Jerusalem. They were driven out. James had been the head elder, if you will, in Jerusalem church, probably. And so he knew them well. So he could write particularly to them about particular situations. Perhaps he had visited them. Perhaps he had heard about situations. But he knew them well. They knew him well. In fact, that's probably why as we read uh, this letter that James has written, sometimes it comes to us and it feels somewhat disjointed, like boom, boom, boom. Here's this point, then this point. Almost feels like bullet points as opposed to this very continuous letter. Now, I do think there's a, a theme here that James is writing from. The theme is how do we live by faith, especially in the midst of difficult situation. That kind of carries us all the way through. But he comes rather sort of bullet pointish. Uh, and it could be because he knew them so well, they know him so well, that he's just sort of writing these things to cue their minds uh, as to how they were to live and because they had heard him speak of these things uh, before. So here's the situation, and, and, and he's either seen it or he knows about it. But remember, they're relatively poor because they're refugees. Now, also remember, and this is hard sometimes for us in, in the U.S., in our day to think about, but realize that Christianity, especially then and still throughout the world, is not the religion of the elite. It is the religion of the poor. Right? Now, for whatever reason, we've had this experience in the U.S. where we're well off and we still believe, thanks be to God. And it isn't that God chooses all the poor to be his. We know those who are poor who aren't believers in Jesus. We also know those who are rich who are believers in Jesus. Even in the first church, there were rich 
people who were believers, but they were in the minority in the church. Christianity was uh, not the religion of the elites, but the religion of the poor. That was the humiliating thing of being a follower of Jesus. To be a believer in Jesus was a, was, was a humiliating thing culturally, still is really, if people are honest. Uh, because what you're doing is following this poor rabbi who didn't have any place to lay his head, had no worldly belongings, and was killed as a criminal. And now we're, we're, we're claiming him to be the Lord of glory, right? And people would look at you and go, that's crazy. Why are you following that guy? There wasn't anything really impressive about him. When you looked at him, he wasn't all that attractive. And nothing about him drew us to him in that sense. And all the kinds of things that, that the world thinks of is important. In fact, Paul writes to the church in Corinth about them. You might remember in the first chapter, First uh, Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to to nothing uh, things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And basically what he was saying to the church in Corinth. It's exactly what he was saying to us. You're not all that. God didn't choose you because you were rich and famous. He didn't choose you because you were smarter than everybody else. That's not the point at all. And so Christianity is is the religion of the poor really. Not of the rich. And so keep that in mind as we read through this. Not only that. It was the rich and powerful in the days of James that were persecuting the believers. So bear that in mind as well. In in fact, to be really honest with you, if you analyze it, especially throughout history and throughout the world, even in our own culture, Christians, if they really know what we believe, real Christianity is mocked. By the upper classes, by the rich and famous, by their lives, by what they say. I mean, it just is. I'm not, this isn't a woe is me time. It's just true. When you compare what we believe and we simply don't hold the same values. But what's really important in life, what's really valuable. Now, sadly, we may give the impression we do, but, but really, we don't. So, so bear that in mind as, as we read through this. I think that will, will help us understand this situation. Very clear, very easy to understand that James lays out this illustration. Two people come into a, a, a worship gathering. Interestingly, James calls it a synagogue. He's writing to dispersed Jews. So when they worshipped, <laughs> they would worship in a way that would resemble what would take place in a synagogue, praying and singing and uh, hearing uh, the, you know, the Bible read, if you will, and a message about it. And so, so, so James says, you're, you've gathered for worship. And two people come in. One is obviously very wealthy and prominent culturally. Has a big ring on that's shiny, and even his clothes, he says, are in a sense very shiny, glorious. You can just look at this person, and you go, "Yep, 
I know where they fit in this society. And then another person comes in, another man comes in, and he's dressed in a, in a shabby kind of way. Filthy, really, is the, the literal uh, translation. He's filthy in his, his look. And so the ushers, or whoever's greeting on that day, size these two people up, and they take the rich guy, and they put him in a prominent place, and they take the poor guy, and they kind of put him out of sight. Now James says, Church. That should never really be happening here. That is completely inconsistent with your faith. My brothers, he said, these are brothers. Show no favoritism, partiality as you hold faith, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is completely inconsistent with being a believer in Jesus. This is completely inconsistent with pure and undefiled religion to show this kind of favoritism or, or partiality. That, that little word partiality, and I only say this because I think it's helpful to see, literally means... Uh, uh, receiving the face of someone. Receiving the face. That is, you, you just look at the face and you go, oh, I know all about them. And that determines how you value them. You look at the externals, the surface matters. You look at the externals of the rich man and you go, oh, he's valuable. So I'm going to put him in the best place. You, you see the face. You see the face, you see the externals, the surface things of the, this, this other man. He looks poor and you go, he's not valuable. Because we all know that the wealthy are more valuable than the poor. That seems to be what's in their thinking. And James goes, no. That could never, ever be that kind of Favoritism, And the question that I have for me and for us as I read through this is, how do I really value people? How do I see them? And when I see them, what does that do? Well, how, how, does, that, how does that cause me to, to value them really? And am I really valuing people on the basis of the externals of these surface issues? Because James is saying that's completely inconsistent with being a believer in Jesus. To simply value by these surface matters. These externals, how wealthy someone is, or how attractive someone is, or how able someone is. Or if I know something about them, what their position in the society is. Whether they're high status, if you will, or low status, well-educated or not. What their political party might be, what, what all these things might be in the context of their own life. And I size my go, this is more valuable than that. What's, what is my, what is our what is your value? How do you value people? How do you evaluate them? Now, when James is saying this, he isn't saying that we never evaluate anyone or, or, or anything like that. I mean, even through the scripture, we find, for instance, in Romans chapter 13, that we're to give honor to those to whom honor is due. This doesn't mean that everybody gets an A in class. It doesn't mean necessarily that everybody gets a trophy. Right? It doesn't mean you can't say, well, this merited this and that merited that. James's point is, 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 is that you're valuing com- on, on things that are completely wrong. Completely wrong. Right? It was a great line of Martin Luther King that his children, he dreamed, would someday not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. He was right along the lines of, of, of James. Okay, if you want to have an evaluation, do it on the right things, not on these surface things. Really know the heart, if you will. And that's impossible ultimately for us, right? Only God can do that. 
But we're not to evaluate, we're not to judge on the basis of these, of these uh, externals. I mean, even Paul himself, you might remember, in Galatians and other places, but in Galatians in chapter 3, verse 27, he says, For as many, as you, many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. So his, his, his point is, not that when you become a Christian, if you're from a Jewish background, you're no longer from a Jewish background. You still really are. If you're Greek, you're still really Greek, even though you've become a Christian. If you're a male, you're still really a man, even if you become a Christian. And if you're a female, you're still a female. If you were a slave when you became a Christian, you're still a slave. Uh, if you were free when you became a Christian, you're still free in all that thing. He's saying, but, but, but none of that matters to God. In that culture, being a man was better than being a woman. He says, that doesn't matter to God. Being free was better than being a slave. If you were going to value someone, you would value them on whether they were a slave. That's not God's value system at all. In that culture, even in the early church, Paul scolded Peter in Galatians chapter 2, if you remember, for favoring uh, the Jewish Christians over the Gentile Christians. And he said, no, no, that doesn't matter. That's all external stuff. We don't value one another because when we're in Christ, you see, that's ultimately all that matters in him. He's received and accepted us. In fact, when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in his second letter, we spent uh, a year, not quite uh, many months in Second Corinthians, not too long ago. But Paul was being judged and being evaluated by, by the Christians in Corinth. Corinth on the basis of appearance. And so he writes to them in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 and verse 12. And he says, we are uh, not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast uh, about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. And then he goes on to say, you know, if we made evaluations on the basis of outward appearance, we would have never believed in Jesus. So why would we ever do that? Why would we ever evaluate anyone on the basis of these external things? Isn't it true that we all do it? I mean, we all do this. I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible Not to look at a person and see the outward. You see the outward, you can tell how they're dressed. You can tell what their race is. You can sometimes tell an ethnicity, uh, uh, sometimes nationality, depending on how they're dressed. You can can tell all kinds of, whether they're a man or a woman, whether they're old or young, uh, whether they're uh, pretty or not. Uh, I mean, just these things just boom. They just register in our minds. It's impossible not to see. So, so, really what matters is not the first thing, but the second thing. What do we do with that? Does that cause us to box them, put them in a place of value or non-value, simply based on that? If it does, we're completely inconsistent with being a believer in Jesus. And so, it's that second thought, if you will, that second thing that we do. What happens what happens then? 
Jude in this little letter of Jude verse 16 speaks of those who make evaluations based on externals and this is so often true in our lives verse 16 of Jude um, he speaks rather disparagingly of a group of people he says these are grumblers malcontents following their own sinful desires they are loud mouth boasters here's the line I'm after showing favoritism to gain advantage See, oftentimes we do show favoritism to one or another because it's to our advantage. We look at them, we go, I, I, I need to get to know that. I need, I, they, I, we need that person in our lives, in my life, maybe even in our church. And so let's, let's treat them really well for my own gain. Because often, I, no, often, from time to time, I get questions from people in the, in the community. Does so-and-so go to your church? You know? And I never tell them. So, because I always say, do you want a pastor that talks about everybody who goes to their church? No, I don't do that. Uh, so you'll have to come see if they're there or call them and ask them. It's a great story. And I, I'm sure it's told about every president in Washington, D.C. who goes to church. But uh, I first learned about it uh, in a little article I read years ago where uh, the uh, pastor of the church where President Eisenhower, shows you how old I am, uh, President Eisenhower uh, attended, sometimes would get calls at the end of the week, and the question would be asked, is President Eisenhower coming to church this morning? And presumably his answer was always the same. I don't know, but God will be here. So it just depends on who you want to see, really, right? Well, that's the thing, you see. Do we size people up and put them in our lives on the basis of our own advantage, what will be good for us, right? So if you're single, you evaluate everybody on the basis of whether or not you could marry them, right? If you're in business, you evaluate everybody on whether they can help your business. If you're in politics or hold a particular political persuasion, you value them on the basis of whether or not they'd be beneficial to you on that basis. If you're in high school, you evaluate them as to what high school they go to, whether they're your high school or, you know, whether they're like you and can fit in and all of that. Is it to your own advantage when, in fact, we're to love one another as he has loved us, as Christ has loved us? And he's, he's, he's loved the unlovable us, right? He's, he's loved us at tremendous cost to himself. He's loved us when we needed everything and had nothing. And he had to provide everything in that. And so he says, are you loving that way? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself even? Are you loving one another as I've loved you? Or are you just loving to your own advantage? What are you doing there? And I I made a list. I started trying to think. And this took me a long time. And it's longer than I'm going to be able to give you. And it's not even exhaustive. On On all the things I think we value falsely. All the externals, all the things that we see, what attracts us really about other people that shouldn't at all. And these aren't in any particular order other than the order I came up with when I was sort of writing down. The first is celebrity. Somehow, for whatever reason, we're just incredibly attracted to celebrity. Whether it be in sports, whether it be in education, whether it be in politics, whether it be in entertainment. We just seem to be attracted, even as believers in Jesus. There's something about celebrity that we, we just we seem to love. If a celebrity, whether it's in, in sports or, 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 or politics or entertainment or wherever, even mentions God, we just want to embrace them. 
Right? They, oh, yes, this is so great. We begin to brag, you know, so-and-so is a Christian. And I'm old enough to know that they almost always let us down. Not always, but almost always. Somehow disparage the name of Christ in ways that we go, rats! I wish I hadn't promoted them to my friends. And we do it without knowing hardly anything about them at all. Their profession of faith, where they go to church, what they really believe. We just sort of accept them because of their celebrity, physical attraction. The truth is that uh, all of us are attracted to pretty people. And, And it's so true because advertisers know that. I mean, if you turn on anything with a screen or anything with a picture, it's almost always non-unattractive people, right? There are people that are attractive, people that this is what the world values, this is what you should look like. Uh, and, 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 and advertisers know that, and so they catch our attention all the time with pretty people. Um, news broadcasts know that. And so I don't watch some news shows because... 20 years ago, they wouldn't allow the, 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 the women who do the broadcast wouldn't be allowed to wear what they're wearing uh, on, on television. And here they are. You know, it's just amazing. Why? Because we're so attracted. And, and again, it's, it's probably impossible for us not to be. So it's the second thought. What do I do with that? What do I do with that when there's this, this physical uh, attraction? Uh, political affiliation. We value one political party over another. Not we as a church, we don't take any stands there. But it's so hard for us to hear that someone's of a different political party to know that. And and then what does that do to our value of them as a human being? Do we see them as a person created in the image of God? Or do do we see someone less valuable to us and less valuable to us in our lives? So we push them out as opposed to bring them in certain nationalities especially in the world we live right now there's there's danger we we've sized somebody up and we say oh they're from that country they're sitting on an airplane right sitting on an airplane you're looking around at people oh i i wonder if they're safe right just because of how they look how they're dressed how they may speak and so we size people up we don't know anything about them wouldn't you hate it if they did that to you? But we just size them up like that. So easy to do. Racial prejudice, obviously. Strides have been made, but, but we can't be attentive at all to what's happening in our nation over the last year and be content with the strides that have been made. We know it happens. We know that it exists perhaps even in us. Even in the, in the context of church life, uh, the wealth of the church in the, in the uh, awakening in the, in the 18th century with the Wesleys and, and, and Whitfield, George Whitfield in England, uh, they were Anglicans, but they would preach to the poor and the poor would become Christians and there was no place for them to go to church because the Anglicans just weren't into poor people in England at that time. So the Methodists, uh, through the Wesleys and even with Whitfield and the Calvinist Methodists, if you don't, if you know anything, that sounds like an oxymoron. It once wasn't. But the Calvinist Methodists uh, started churches for the poor. But then by the next century, 
William Booth looked, who was a Methodist, looked upon the Methodist church and said, we've become too respectable. There's no place for the poor. So we started the Salvation Army. And so it just sort of happens that we become uh, uh, respectable, if you will, in the culture. And, and we, it's so easy then for even the poor to be excluded, the, the wealth that we have. I read a, a, an interesting book uh, last week. It isn't published yet. Uh, I hope it will be. Um, on dealing with those who are disabled. And, and there's a, an expression that I didn't know about. And I talked to the author just the other day about it. Um, I, I didn't know about it, but it's this expression called ableism. That those who are disabled often feel prejudiced against because they haven't this they have the same ability physically or otherwise as others and so it's easy to size someone up to look at someone who seems to be disabled in some way and say they're less valuable than someone else we may not want to do that but but just on the way that we treat uh, them we can value uh, families uh, on the basis of, of how they're structured. Uh, does the dad work and the mom stay at home? Uh, in some circles, that's more highly valued than if both uh, husband and wife work. Do we value on the basis of whether uh, the family is, is a single family, single parent family, or uh, mom and dad both there? Do we value one over the other, implicitly, explicitly? How do we do that? Does that ever come into our minds? Do we even know that we might be doing it? Uh, do we value families on the basis of whether they have children or not, or how many children they have? Do we value families as to how they school their kids? This family is more valuable than that family to us because they school their kids this way or that way, and we think that's better than this. And so, so we they more highly valued that uh, over uh, another. Uh, even in ministries, there are ministries that target, for instance, in high school ministries, there are ministries that t- target the popular kids. If we can get the quarterback of the football team or the head of the cheerleader or, or the president of the student council to come to our ministry event, then, then that'll be great. So we target those kids. Really? Is that how Jesus did it? He walked into a community and he said, sorry, you're a tax collector. I can't talk to you. Oh, Come on and follow me. Or oh, you're a prostitute. I have to stay away from you. He didn't go after the rich and famous to start his ministry. He went after those who were even despised in the community to start what he was doing. People often say to me, Bill, are you interested in having the church do college ministry because they're the next leaders and they're going to be the important people in in their generation? And I have to be honest with you, I always say no. We do ministry with college students because they're there. Because we have a university in our midst. And how can we ignore that? I don't care if they're going to be famous or not. Or governors or not. Or whatever they're going to be. They're people created in the image of God. And they're lost. They need to know the Lord and walk with Him. That's the reason we do it. Uh, Not out of any great strategy. But we do it because the university is there. And we try to reach them and be with them. So all of those things, you could probably think of more. I'm sure I've left out some obvious ones. Maybe I've left out the one that you struggle with most. I don't know. But but think about that. How do we size people up? And why are people valuable to us and not valuable to us in the midst of that? And how would the Lord like us to value people his way? 
Now, that doesn't mean that we should discriminate against pretty people and rich people and highly educated people uh, either. You see, in fact, what we need to be is a place that they can actually come and, and not be valued for the externals. I mean, oftentimes uh, we have people in our church who have uh, various uh, positions of notoriety and so forth and so on. And when I first meet them, I almost always say, I hope you're not insulted by the fact that we're going to ignore your position. Because we will. It doesn't matter to us at all. Once when our church was first starting... Years ago, a very wealthy person in the community come to me and, and he knew we were going to be doing some building. And he said, I never give money to building. And I said, I don't care. <laughs> I said, I don't care about your money, nor does God. He's not impressed with what you give. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And by the way, he owns the hills too. So he doesn't really care about how much money you have. He doesn't really care about that. And I don't either. We don't either. He never came back. But, um, but that's just the point of it, isn't it? He doesn't really care about my degrees or yours. He doesn't really care about how much money I have or you have. Really? He's the Lord of glory. He's the glorious one. Isn't it ironic that people were coming to worship Jesus... And they were impressed with the shiny clothes of some guy who walked in. They were impressed with the glory of this guy who walked in. When they were here to worship Jesus. I mean, I, I always think about that occasion, when the well, numbers of occasions, when the disciples were convincing among themselves, which one of us is the greatest? And I think Jesus wanted to tap them on the shoulders and said, uh, me, right? <laughs> but you don't see my glory. Why? Because my glory is to give myself for those who need. My glory is to give myself for those who aren't worthy. My glory is to to serve those and to humble myself, as we said in our profession of faith this morning, and all of that. So, why, very quickly, why does James lay out why this is, is so wrong? He says it's evil to do this. This is no small thing. Verse 4. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Doing this is evil. It's not just a small thing. This is an evil thing. In fact, we'll talk about this next week. It's a breaking of the law of God. It's a breaking of the law of God to do this. To show this kind of favoritism because it's not loving your neighbor uh, as yourself. So why? James lists just a few things in, in the passage that I read. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? In other words, to, 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 to relegate the poor, especially the poor believer, to the shadows is to go against what God has done. Now, again, it isn't that God chooses all the poor and none of the rich. That's not his point. But he does choose those who are poor. So if God has made them our brothers, if he is their father as much as he is our father, how can we relegate them to the shadows, these very ones who, whom God has chosen? Now, you might say, well, is this sort of reverse discrimination? Does God favor the poor over the rich? I, I read a passage out of Deuteronomy uh, 18 earlier, or 19 earlier, uh, that says that God doesn't show partiality, rich or poor. And that's true. But we do know as we read through the scripture, especially the New Testament, there are very 
great dangers for us who are rich. There are very great dangers for us who are rich. Because you see, Jesus has come for the poor. The poor in spirit. Those who realize they can't. Our wealth can very often be one of the major impediments for us coming to faith in Jesus. You remember the man we call the rich young man, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and wants to know how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, what are the commandments? And, 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 and this man lays them out, especially 5 through 10, on the commandments and how we're to treat people. And Jesus says, go and do that. He says, I have. And Jesus gets at the heart of it. Do you really love them? Do you really love God? Well, if you really do, then sell all you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me. And the scripture says that he loved his riches and he went away sad. And Jesus said, you know what? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. (laughs) Which is one of those ridiculous illustrations. I mean, just think of it. Make a great comic strip, right? You have this needle with this little small thing and this big fat camel trying to get through it. It's impossible. So it's easier for that to happen than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because we value these things we can see. We think that's our, our, our real um, um, security. So when Paul writes to Timothy, who's a church planter, he writes to, writes to Timothy, we have it in his first letter, 1 Timothy chapter 5, or, yeah, chapter 5, no, chapter 6. He says, warn the rich that they aren't to be haughty, that is to be self-confident in their riches, nor put their hope in riches which are uncertain. Because that's the tendency. It's a tendency for all of us. The tendency for all of us. I remember when I was in seminary, Karen and I, and um, I wasn't working and we were praying that God would s- supply our needs. Now, I was willing to go to work, but, but for some reason we had this idea that we could pray and God would give us money. And he did. Uh, so I didn't work for three years and all, you know the story, most of you. And so people gave us money unsolicited. We only knew where the money came from generally. And so for those three years, I felt like Elijah getting fed by the ravens. And, uh, and I, I was so, we were so much on our knees praying that God would meet our needs. I'll be honest with you, I don't pray quite like that as I, as I ought now. I'm just so accustomed. Now don't stop paying me so I can <laughs> pray more, but... But you get the point. I'm sure it's true for you too. That's why I say it. It's true for all of us. We become so dependent on these things and we forget our need. And so that's the danger, right? That's the self-confidence of the rich to, to, to forget about the fact that it's God who supplies all our needs. And so he doesn't favor the poor over the rich, but, but he says, uh, the poor are a better illustration for me than the rich because I come for those are in need. Are you in need? You see, we all are in need. Are you in need? So he says, if if you do that, then you've gone past what God desires. He has chosen the poor of this world. And then he says, you've dishonored the poor man. You haven't loved your neighbor as yourself. How horrible it is for this poor guy to come in and be put in a position in the shadows and the rich man honored. Simply on the basis of appearance. Who who knows? This poor man might be the most spiritual, wise, godly person 
in the whole room. And yet by appearances, because we value wealth, not the heart, nobody sees that. Don't you know? I mean, he's a guy, he's a human being. Don't you know? He would feel that. I saw see images in my mind of African-American slaves left out of churches or when they got to go to churches having to sit in the balconies. Then that went on for decades, century, more. Do you think it's insulting? How can we do that? When Jesus has let us in, right? When he's accepted us. And he tells us to accept one another as he has accepted us, not on externals. And he's even accepted us, not on the basis of anything good in us, simply because we're created in his image and his son has died for us. So we're to accept one another in that way. Don't you know it's dishonoring the poor? And then he also says it's irrational. Don't you realize that these people that you're impressed with are the very ones that, that, are, the, that are persecuting you? I mean, why, why should you be impressed with, with, the, with the wealthy when it's the wealthy that are coming against you. Maybe not that particular guy that shows up in church that day, but, but that whole group of people, they don't, they're against you. They're the ones. And I think, why are we so, why are we so enamored with celebrity when, when, when celebrity disowns us all the time, mocks us all the time by way of life and by way of words. And yet there's something that makes us so impressed with those of high status and stature in life. He says, no, no, that isn't it at all. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? Well, first of all, like every sin, we acknowledge it and we name it. That's sin. And I know my own tendencies of sin in my life. That's why our prayer of confession, use it, was written for today that we we could pray it. God, I know this is how I am. Even when I do that, which is good with self-righteous motives, right? Even when I think I get it right, I I probably don't. Uh, And I know that I can be this way, so forgive me. Repent, turn from it with the help of God. Pray that God will will change you. And and the good news for us as believers is not only we've forgiven because Jesus died for these sins, but also because he never sinned in this way, never sinned in any way, but he never sinned in this way. He never valued people in the wrong ways, ungodly ways. And so his righteousness not only covers us, but it's within us. And now we need to pray that his righteousness would transform us so that we can really live out this way. Do you realize that the world has absolutely no hope to solve this problem of favoritism? Because it's ultimately rooted in sin. The world has, now the world wants to in some way. I mean, we can see it in our own experience. We can see it in legislation, in, 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 in our own country, that to, to not show this kind of favoritism in all kinds of ways, whether it be with race or age or, or whatever, right? All kinds of ways. We're trying. We know that this is right. We shouldn't do this. But here we are today, still doing it still showing prejudice and favoritism to people on the basis of surface issues, not on the basis of the, of, of the quality, if you will, of their character, but the color of their skin or whatever it is. We, it's still going on. 
And it's been going on. And do we really have any hope that it's, it's ever going to change? That, that's the, the worldly line, if you will, the worldly story. That's the narrative that's happening in the world. It can't change. And it won't change. What is ever going to change it? Well, a whole different way, a whole different way. It's the way of Christ, you see. And on the one hand, we, we look into the future and we know that a world is coming where this won't happen. And then we read about it in the book of Revelation. In Revelation and chapter 5, for instance, we read about the fact that, that when Christ has, had come, he redeemed people, saved people from every uh, tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's in Romans, I mean, in Revelations, Revelation in chapter 5. And then we see this picture in Revelation chapter 12. At the very end, the new heavens and the new earth as they come. Verse 9, Revelation 19, uh, verse 6, what the heck. Uh, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you mustn't do that. I'm a fellow servant. The angel said that. With you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, the point is this. It's going to happen. That all kinds of people from all walks of life all different generations, all different races, all different ethnic backgrounds, all different nationalities, all different worldly status, all different abilities and all of that. We're all going to be around the same table, dressed gloriously in righteousness. That's our hope. To be honest with you, if you quiz people on the street, that's what they want. But they have no way to get there. But there is a way to get there. And the way to get there is through the one who is the way there. The truth of it. Life. Jesus. And now you see, as those who are in this kingdom, we're to live that way. What did we sing earlier? We sang, So with one voice we'll sing to the Lord, with one heart we'll live out his word, till the whole world sees the Redeemer is come, for he dwells in the presence of his people. So how will they see it? Only as we walk them through it. As we admit our sin. And as we trust in the work of Jesus. And as we anticipate the hope that is to come. And then as we live that out. They should see among us that the Redeemer has come. Let's pray, Father. Pray for us. The people would see that, that they see that the Redeemer has come, that we'd know it and that we'd rejoice in it and we'd live that out. That we don't need, oh God, we don't need to be impressed. The surface matters, the externals of each other. Because you're not impressed. 
What we need to be impressed with is the one who really shines. Not the clothing we wear as we get dressed to come. But the one who really is glorious, Jesus. So please, Jesus, show yourself to us in such commanding glory. That when we see each other, we, we don't see the external things. But really, we just see you. So be with us, I pray. And enable us to control our tongues, not to gush over those who are attractive or have all the worldly wealth and all of that. But to be able to speak kindness to those who aren't like us, to those who are different. And to receive them. And to be compassionate. And to live unstained by the world. Not to live according to the world's standards. But to live uh, according to the kingdom of God. And Father, there are many among us on this day who need us. Who need help. Because they suffer for Peggy Gabler as she heals from her hip surgery. Uh, for Barbara Mishler as she uh, recovers from, uh, from a stroke. Uh, Father for um, the brother-in-law of uh, Mike uh, Wietrich, uh, who's fighting cancer for Mike's mom, who has breast cancer, and their family. Uh, For Marjorie Miller, situation with cancer. For others, God, to deal with various physical and emotional and relational difficulties in life. Life can be wearisome, God. Jesus, you know that. So I pray that you would help us. That you would help us to know what's really important, what's really valuable. And that you would enable us to value Jesus as you do. And that we as a church can show that the Redeemer has come. And this I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. I remind you that there will be elders available to pray uh, after the service. They'll be in these pews up here to my left. And so please, if you have particular needs, come and allow them uh, to pray uh, for you. Please receive this as God's benediction now. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. May he work in us all that is well-pleasing in his sight. And this, through Jesus Christ, our Lord.